Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second edition of the South-South Fellowship podcast. My name is João Pedro Caleiro, and I am a writer-researcher at the Lehman Foundation Program at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. And today, we will be discussing the challenges of sequencing and adapting reforms in education. Please keep in mind that this material is not meant to be seen as an endorsement of one initiative or another, but as a starting point for larger themes of hopefully productive conversations for education policymakers in the Global South. This program will be divided in two parts, and in this first part, we will be discussing a case study available in the Library of Global Public Goods, which is focused on efforts to improve foundational learning in two Brazilian municipalities. We start with Sobral, a relatively poor city of some 200,000 people in the northeast state of Ceará. In 2005, a study found that over 80% of students in the municipal network of Sobral had more than a year's delay in school. Many teachers had been hired without meeting technical criteria, and no training was offered to them. But by 2017, 12 years later, Sobral had become very well-known in educational circles. It had jumped from the position 1,366 to the very first position in Brazil's National Quality Ranking of Primary Education, the IDEB. It was the largest jump by any city in this period. Illiteracy and absenteeism were virtually eliminated in the city, according to official data. How did this happen? Well, according to education experts, it has a lot to do with right sequencing, internal coherence of the policies put in place, and political will. According to Sobral government officials, the first important step that the city took to improve its educational results can seem a bit counterintuitive. In the mid-1990s, the newly installed mayor, Cid Gomes, reduced the number of schools by about a third, while keeping every child enrolled. This move was the result of a diagnosis that the school network was too dispersed. The 40 smallest schools served only 4.4% of all students, for example, and were often in very poor conditions. Reducing schools allowed the city to eliminate multigrade classes, allocate resources more efficiently, and consolidate a more robust network of schools. With greatly improved facilities and professionalized management, reducing patronage opportunities for local politicians. But after all that was done, a study was commissioned to test learning levels, and officials were shocked with the findings. The schools were nice and all, but kids were not learning, not even the basics. Infrastructure was clearly not enough. So, according to then-Mayor Cid Gomes, a political decision was made to communicate the system's failures to society and parents and then turn a collective laser focus to literacy. The logic behind this decision was, if kids don't learn to read and write at the right age, they fall behind, and then they can't follow the rest of the content. According to the city's leaders, this new priority meant putting the best teachers and the best resources towards getting full literacy, with individualized monitoring of each student. The official numbers show that the strategy was successful, with the literacy dropping substantially in only a few years. After that, according to Sobral government officials and education experts, the city was free to build on this framework with several measures in different areas, such as teacher training and assessment. 
And these measures were implemented in a gradual and carefully sequenced manner. One example. Sobral first relied on external consultants to assess the learning of students. But once the internal bureaucracy had participated in multiple rounds, they felt confident enough to take it in-house, allowing them greater autonomy and facilitating integration with other parts of the system. Another example. Sobral government officials often point to the importance of meritocratic recruitment for both teachers and principals, with no political appointments allowed. But they also warn that you don't build that kind of capacity overnight. So, as their thinking went, first, they made sure to attract people with the right profile and skills into the educational system. And only later, they made sure to require that only those with the right experience could stay. These measures cost money. But luckily enough, there was a major increase in federal transfers to all pure municipalities in Brazil over that period. And the education budget of Sobral tripled in real terms between 2001 and 2015. Resources still stayed well below the national average, but the rise in funding was put to use in delivering vastly better learning results. Now, we will hear more about the story from Luizy Cruz, an education expert who co-wrote a report about Sobral for the World Bank. She highlights a few of the most important policies put in place by the municipality, like their strategies to eliminate dropouts and improve teacher training. Let's hear it from her. Sobral has several good practices that are useful to other governments. For example, there is a widespread understanding of the importance of student attendance. A few minutes after classes start, the school principal has a list of absent students and start contacting families to identify why the student missed class. What is a common practice today was different from that in the early 2000s. This practice began with the close support of, of the municipal education office to schools, which visited schools frequently and helped them to establish a routine to monitor student attendance. The political leadership was also involved in this process, helping to raise awareness of the importance of education. A former Sobral mayor used to call some families, asking why their children missed school. And this transmits a strong message to the population that the municipality cares about every child's education. And this practice has concrete results. For this system, the municipality virtually eliminated school dropout, which was up to 21% in 2001. Another great practice from Sobral refers to teacher professional development. The in-service teacher training in the municipality promotes a solid understanding of curricula and the learning objectives and the use of structured materials with students. Training is super practical. It focuses on the curricular ability that teachers are expected to develop with, with kids in the coming weeks and the available material to cover the ability. Teachers discuss exercises and the strategies to apply with students, and they leave the training already having practiced how to develop specific curricular skills with students. Also, as every minute in the classroom counts for student learning, training also helps teachers establish routines and strengthen classroom management. These are some examples. However, it's essential to mention that they are not isolated actions. All our education practices in Sobral converge to the same target, 
that is to make students read and write properly by the end of grade two. Though the Sabrao motto has been celebrated by many, including because of some of these policies we just heard about, it also has its share of critics. Some educators point out that the obsession over constant assessments leads to a problem of quote-unquote teaching to the test. This means that as the national ranking IDEB, for example, only measures learning in Portuguese and math, and as teachers in Sobral are rewarded for good test results, that creates a toxic mix in which teachers and students only focus on these subjects and those tests and nothing else. And the result is that all other subjects and skills may end up neglected. Other critics note that the style of learning through repetition and chance, instantly notable to anyone who visits Sobral, goes against the theory that kids should be learning through active engagement with the subject and their own reality. And regardless of what you think of the Sobral model, another question remains. Why did all of this happen in this small, pure municipality out of all places? Well, one important thing to keep in mind, according to some experts interviewed for the case, is that Sobral has had a notable and unusual continuity in its political life. Two of the Gomez brothers, Sij and Ivo, have been mayors for about half of the last 25 years. And in the remaining years, City Hall was led by their political allies. According to these observers, it was this political continuity which allowed the City Hall and its education secretariat a lot of freedom in setting and sequencing education policy. It also could have played a role in shielding these measures from the influence of other institutions like control bodies and unions, which usually play a major role in shaping policy in Brazil. In any case, what we can all agree is that Sobral, like it or not, has put forward a specific strategy, which is very well known by now. But despite attracting widespread attention, only a handful of other Brazilian cities who tried were able to reproduce this formula and climb up the national rankings as well. So we asked ourselves, what are the roadblocks that these cities are facing along the way? To find out and tell this story in full, we turn to the expertise of the Case Center for Public Leadership at the Blavatnik School, which has a lot of experience in writing public policy cases for a global audience. Noni, a senior case writer who was part of the team for this case, will now explain a bit more about the process. At the Case Centre, we write teaching case studies, which focus on difficult public policy decisions. So these aren't necessarily best practices or even um, roadmaps for how to navigate these difficult decisions. Instead, they put participants in the shoes of real policymakers. They're intended to start a discussion um, during which students can explore how theories, strategies and policies might work when um, they're trying implement them in the real world. So when we're writing a new case study, we would start with the learning objectives. So for this case, that meant when the director of the Lehman Foundation program, Anna Petherick, came to the case center, she told us she wanted to write a case study on how to take a seemingly successful reform story, which is packaged and presented as a model to other policymakers, and make that work in another setting. And this was a an issue that was coming up a lot in her teaching that students, participants wanted to wanted to know how to take something. Oh, that worked for them, but how can we get that to work for us? 
And in particular, she wanted to focus on the issue of sequencing. Like, how do you make sure that you're doing things in the right order for your setting? So all of our cases, we have a protagonist, and that's really what allows students to put themselves into this decision-making role, where they're grappling with these issues like they would in the real world. And it takes the case out of the abstract and into the realm of the practical. So the team started looking for someone that would be suitable to be this protagonist. We want, knew we wanted it to be in Brazil because we didn't want to have to explain two whole education systems. And we thought that'd be too much for one 10 page case. But in Brazil, local governments have enough diversity between them and autonomy to be able to make some of the changes um, that would be meaningful to the case study. We eventually settled on Marcelo Ferres in Campos, who was similar enough to um, the Sobral setting, but had some real differences which students would explore. For one thing, they had considerably more resources than Sabrao, but they were um, really underperforming. So I guess the first step was to talk to Marcelo and see what sort of decisions he was grappling with. Ferris was the Secretary of Education and Science and Technology in campus who'd come into the role in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and he was really desperate to try and change some of the, or address some of the challenges that Campos's education system was facing. And here we come to our second major city in this case study. Campos, as it is usually called, is a city of half a million people in the state of Rio de Janeiro. With vast oil reserves, it is relatively wealthy for Brazilian standards. But despite its resources, it had one of the worst educational results in the state. Marcelo Ferris who had a lot of experience in education at the federal level, came in determined to change this scenario. And he began to look for other cities for inspiration, including Sobral. But once he took over the municipal posts, the challenges he faced were enormous. Campus had failed to take part in the last IDEBI, the national education ranking. So one of the first issues was getting some data to understand what was going on in the city schools. Another challenge was that school principals were commonly appointed by local politicians, despite the introduction of elections for the position of principal. And this stood in the way of a more professionalized school management. Marcelo tried to change the election process, restricting eligibility to education professionals and to those already in the post. He also gave equal weighting to the internal communities, such as teachers and staff, and the external community, such as parents of enrolled children, claiming that the scheme would make the school responsive to both communities. But there was much more to solve. Bureaucratic processes inside the secretariat were slow, which made Marcelo feel as if he was back in the past. According to him, there was also a lot of suspicion from stakeholders about his measures, so he set out on a big communication and engagement push. With the help of Sobral, Marcelo established a teacher training center. Then, he also followed in Sobral's footsteps by deciding to improve school facilities as a first move. According to him, this was a way to get support from parents and buy some time and political goodwill, while he structured a plan to improve learning in the campus system. Oh, and remember the early decision by Sobral to reduce its number of schools? Well, Marcelo concluded that closing some schools would be a useful step for his city too. Campus was very low density 
and had an average of only 179 students per school, compared to 472 students per school in Sobral. The ongoing costs of maintaining schools with only a handful of students in precarious conditions was also a barrier for Ferris to advance on some priorities, like professionalized management and eliminating multi-grade classes. Expanding full-time schooling, another priority, would also be especially hard with a system that was stretched too thin. But this move was controversial when Sobral did it, and it would be controversial in campus too. Families did not want their kids to be sent to new schools further away, and the Independent State Prosecutor's Office filed an official complaint. Following through with this step would require Marcelo to handle mounting resistances without the political shielding that the Gomez family had in Sobral. Now, let's hear it from Noni on why this crossroads moment is so important for the case. In our case studies, we use decision points to focus um, participant decision-making in the classroom. So if cases are meant to be practiced for real-world policymaking, then the decision point it's really should be the most challenging moment facing the protagonist in their journey. And it's useful to use something like a choice between two rights or a choice between two wrongs, or a moment when the future of a project hangs in the balance depending on what the protagonist is going to do. What we want is something really that's going to prompt an engaging discussion and also allows participants to exercise their own judgment. There's no right answer with the decision point. So in this case, Marcelo told us that the most challenging moment came around these school closures he was considering early in the process of reforming campus's education system. He knew from talking to Sobral that it had been very important for them to do it early in their process. But just as he was preparing to close some of the schools, a list of 20 schools he was considering for closure was leaked to the teachers' union and in the local press. In response, it was strongly opposed by the opposition councillors, by the unions and by parent groups. And the public prosecutor's office even began looking into the legality of the closures. Now, Ferris argued that the schools were very small. Some were in buildings or in terrible structural condition that didn't even meet the, the city regulations. And some of the students were going to be given places in daycares and schools just metres away from their existing education setting. But the political situation was a complete mess. And while in Campos, while in Sobral, there had been considerable political support, Campos, the political situation was more tenuous. Marcelo had to decide, should he reconsider the importance of school closures at this stage were there other ways to achieve his goal of improving education in campus? Could he reconsider, for example, the sequence of reforms? Now we had understood Campus, Sobral, and their educational themes a bit better, and we had a completed case study in our hands. Then a trip to Sobral was arranged to take the organizers of the South-South program and 30 educational leaders from Kenya and Pakistan to witness it all firsthand. There, we visited schools, heard from principals, met parents and teachers, interacted with the kids, and debated with some of the leaders that were in power throughout the reform period, such as the current and former mayors and secretaries of education. It was an enriching experience, which made the fellows reflect on what parts of this case spoke to their local realities and what parts did not. 
And those reflections are going to be our focus on the second part of this podcast. For the second part of our podcast, we will focus on the kinds of conversations that the Sobral Campus case can prompt among people elsewhere in the Global South, based on reflections from the Kenya and Pakistan educational fellows who visited Brazil. Of course, some of the first things that popped to their minds were the obvious differences in context. And at this point, it's worth acknowledging that the Global South is far from a group of similar countries. Rather, the term collects together tremendous diversity. Some of the fellows noted, for example, that all the reforms in Sobral and Campos were only possible because the municipalities have a constitutionally mandated level of control over education policy. That is not the case in other countries, as well as local level political continuity that is not the norm in many other contexts. Think, for example, of the ability to hire and train your own teachers. In countries like Kenya and Pakistan, this happens at the national level through a centralized body. So even the most well-intentioned and prepared mayor, for example, must work with teachers who are hired, trained, and assessed by someone else. This, once again, diminishes their level of control over one of the most important aspects of education policy. Or consider another issue, for example, such as language of instruction. Brazil has only one official language, and most parts of the country don't have to worry about what language the kids will have learned in their homes before going to school. It's another thing entirely in Kenya and Pakistan, where there are many different languages, and the question of what should be taught in school is a thorny topic. But curiously, across many contexts, attempts at education reform often start with the same question that Sobral leaders first asked themselves in the mid-1990s. If, seemingly, all of the necessary basics for education are supposedly in place, why are children still not learning? Joyce Kinyanjui, who works as an assistant to the chief administrative secretary in the Ministry of Education in Kenya, remembers having this conversation while in Sobral. Let's hear from her. I think for me, the, the first impact was um, a question that actually mostly asked. You know, we sat and we, you remember there was a session we had on budgeting and we were discussing about, uh, uh, in uh, Sobral, it's the municipality that does the budgeting. But for us, Mose, um, he's the one who actually does uh, the budget for the ministry. And I remember we talked and talked and talked and talked and Mose was quiet. He usually is. And then he asked us, how come children are not learning? And all those things you've mentioned, all of them, I see them in the budget and I include them in the budget. I think that was the most profound question to this day that I keep thinking about. Where do we drop the ball? Because in every item, he says, there's a budget line from the Ministry of Planning and Finance where he sits. He does that. He gives money. So why is it year after year, year after year, decade after decade, kids are not learning? And I think for me, if we are able to do that, that will be brilliant. John Mosey, the man in charge of the budgeting, whom Joyce just mentioned, is the senior deputy director management in the Treasury Department in Kenya. And he knows 
that you can ask the same questions about why education is not delivering, and you can get the same answers. But that is only when the complicated part starts. According to him, the biggest lesson is that it's hard to anticipate everything in advance. So the focus should be on adapting policies and not merely adopting them. And that is one of the strongest takeaways from the Sobral Campus case. Here is how John put it. Looking at the two cases that uh, were in the paper that you shared, that is how Sobral and the leadership was able to transform education. And then the Combo region, which was trying, and then in between now there was dilemma, like there is a lot of pressure from the people. How do you reform this agenda? Of course, it is the good that you need to do. So they, they tried to copy-paste Sobral, but it was there was a, bi- a bit of pitfalls, and that was a learning area that, yes, you, you, you might want to do as much as you, you, it has done elsewhere, but you might get some uh, uh, hindrances then, which means you have to somehow uh, captivate your project in a different form to achieve the same results. So that then those those things that uh, may not work, you have to really quickly think very fast on how to navigate around them. Like John mentioned, leaders in both Sobrao and Campus had to navigate around resistance to some of the measures they were trying to adopt. In the beginning, for example, Sobrao had to deal with parents who refused to put their kids into the buses that would take them to schools, sometimes 30 kilometers away citing security risks. Then, many of the politicians were incensed to be kept out of the appointment process for school leadership. Campus struggled even harder, with not only parents, but independent and powerful government bodies resisting its plan to close some schools. Add to that the extra challenge of handling the COVID-19 pandemic and all the drama surrounding the decision to close schools as well as the hard follow-up process, still ongoing, of helping students to catch up on lost learning. What both cities learned is that by focusing initially on non-controversial aspects, such as infrastructure, they were able to communicate that education was a priority and get some easier political wins while the hard work was being planned backstage. Fuzia Khan, who is a chief advisor to the School Education and Literacy Department in the province of Sindh in Pakistan, talked about the importance of getting the relevant stakeholders on board in order to achieve ownership, guarantee implementation, and sow the seeds of sustainability. Now, like after coming back from Sobral, for me, the most important thing before, you know, any intervention is taking community on board. Uh, For me, this is the key. Uh, because, uh, and in the past, like, for example, from my province, Sin province, um, we, we are famous for making these uh, policies and strategies. But unfortunately, if you look at to the implementation of those documents, it's not that, you know, uh, positive. So one thing which I realize is that, that usually uh, the kind of policies or these documentations are usually donor driven. And plus, um, uh, you know, it is there is no sense of ownership there. Like the, the, the uh, right stakeholders, they are not on board when we are developing these documents, these policies. What Fuzia just said counts not only for the community in a more localized sense, but for all types of stakeholders in education. 
think teachers, principals, parents, and even politicians. In our conversations with fellows, another type of actor frequently appeared in the mix that was not too relevant to the Brazil case, international donors. The importance of these donors in the educational landscape in both Kenya and Pakistan gives rise to a whole different set of concerns. For example, that measures will be implemented from the outside in as opposed to the inside out, and often in a top-down fashion, without enough sensibility to local concerns and specificities. Those themes are further explored in the document and podcast about the Tusome and Pride programs in Kenya, which are also available in the Library of Global Public Goods. So what have we got so far as learnings from the Sobrao Campus case and our conversations with fellows? We want measures that are made in the right sequencing, with support built from the onset and from all relevant stakeholders. Add something else to the mix. Internal coherence between policies, in a way that they build of each other, rather than ending up as loose ends. Joyce, for example, spoke about being inspired by the link between teacher training and assessment. Something that Sobrao has done well, according to academic studies of its success, is to measure things, such as student learning, on a timely basis. But after that, the challenge is making sure that these evaluations feed back into the system constantly, on an individualized level, to make sure no one is left behind. Something that has never been as important as in a post-pandemic world, when teaching at the right level and meeting kids where they are will be key to catching up. Joyce has been looking into advancing some of that positive feedback loop inside Kenya. So in terms of assessment, you will find that there, there are teachers who actually don't set any, any assessment at all. So they will rely on um, uh, uh, tests that are set by other teachers from other schools, and that's what they use to, to measure um, students' uh, learning. And uh, you will find that because of that, they are not measuring the real, the, um, the real uh, capacity of their learners. And then most of them, they will not assess reading the way at the different levels for acquisition of um, reading. So that, um, for me, made me focus on the, the practice of assessment in class, put it in the concept notes, and then if we can build the capacity of teachers to use, to use simple assessment tools and be able to use that data to inform, to improve teaching and individualized teaching, I think we'll be some, somehow uh, there. And then even just constructing items. Normally you will find children are given 30, 50 sums to do as homework. And for me, that is not an assessment. I don't know what that is. So when you look at uh, the, the government report on assessment, teachers actually don't understand how to give an as a formative assessment for improved learning, how to use that data to bring it back. So that, I think, for me, is, is quite important. Everyone who works with education knows that even though you must grasp the full picture to build towards successful outcomes, it is actually the little moments that can be the most illuminating and inspiring, just enough to keep you going. So to finish our conversations, we asked the fellows to share a moment from the trip to Sobrao that has stuck with them ever since. And they brought some interesting scenes that speak about equity and the pride of being an educator. Let's hear it again in order 
from Fuzia, Joyce, and John. From an individual perspective, in a school where this uh, child uh, with learning disability, uh, she was sitting in a corridor and that teacher was, you know, separately giving her time and teaching her there. That was, uh, for me, I mean, it was very touching because I think every child has a right to get such kind of individual attention. So for me, I mean, and, and probably it is because of that, that once I'm back, I'm actually uh, working with the, our special education department because for now, like, like if Sogral can do it, why not we can provide such facility to the students? So um, I'm sorry, but it was a very touching thing for me. So one, for me, being proud of the school where you're teaching, it means the grades are good, discipline is good. You want to be associated with a good thing. And that's why you're comfortable wearing the uniform. So I think for me, their the sense of pride and accomplishment, I think that's, that for me, I will always remember. Um, teachers who who are happy to be there and to, to associate yeah, with the school they, where they teach. Yeah, I'll take three aspects. One, money can never be enough to do everything. Some things just need just a shift of the mind and you achieve. Another thing is the remedial. You know, that, that catch-up of other students, the slow, the slow learners, brought an aspect of equity and really that touched me in terms of how you can just, without really deliberating on the best students, everyone has a chance and everybody given an opportunity, they have a place in academics and they can achieve. And from the personal front, when you are uh, uh, entangled in difficult moments, just take a deep breath think about nothing, and after you come back to normal, you'll find that you start from a new start. Thank you very much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and will keep reflecting about some of the lessons from the experience of Brazilian municipalities to improve foundational learning, and also from the Global South educators who spend every day working to improve learning in their countries. Please refer to the Sobral Campus case study about this same theme which takes some of these issues further. And if you want to learn about different initiatives on foundational learning, don't forget to hear our other episodes. They shine a light on the programs to Tsome and Pride in Kenya, of public-private partnerships in education in Pakistan, and a coalition to establish common curriculum standards in Brazil. And we hope to hear comments, suggestions, and questions through the email lehman.foundation at bsg.ox.ac.uk. See you next time.